For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. What's been going on? What have you been up to? I've actually just been watching the trailer for a new documentary. It's called Carbon, the Unauthorised Biography. I just thought it was so funny that this popped into my feed this morning. It could not be more relevant. And so I thought I'd give it a plug, a shout out. It's not an ad, but I I love to support independent filmmakers. And I think you should all go and see this movie, Carbon, the Unauthorised Biography. And I do know them, actually. I've, I've come across them before. And I reached out to the director and asked for permission to share a little snippet from the trailer. And I think you'll hear in a moment why this is so relevant. But also, listen out at the end of this bit for the voice of Sarah Snook from Succession. They've roped her in to be like the personification, the voice of of Carbon, which is awesome. If I were to fall in love with an element, it would have to be Carbon. Carbon's the life of the party. You'll know when Carbon walks in. <laughs> Carbon's just annoyingly good at everything. How can she be so versatile? Solids and liquids and gases because of carbon energy. Life has become longer, health's better, all because of this sort of free gift. So how did I come to be the most talked about but least understood element on Earth? Okay, here's why that film feels ridiculously relevant this week to me. My guest is one of the guys behind a new material called Air Carbon. He's the co-founder and CEO of a Californian biotech company called New Light Technologies, which, and these are their words, uses carbon capture technology to produce high-performance polymers that replace oil-based materials by outcompeting them on price and performance, they say. Intriguing, huh? Basically, it's like no plastic plastic, and they're making it using greenhouse gases that would otherwise escape into the environment. But I'll let Mark explain the method. Remember that we put all the links and further reading in the show notes if you want to check out the detail on this. And also, if you're interested in this materials area, you might want to revisit a couple of previous episodes we did. Number 151 last season with Cindy Rhodes, all about how we make recycled polyester and episode 126 with another Californian tech inventor. His name is David Breslauer from Bolt Threads, and he's the spider silk guy. I love that interview. But back to Mark Herrimer. There's so much to like in this conversation. Not least that Mark is totally up for answering the tougher questions. And actually, you know, when you you do get to sit down with big CEOs and founders, they're often really gate-kept and they don't want to broach the tough stuff. But Mark was really open, which I loved. He's um, he's a cool conversationalist, you know. We, we had a really far-reaching conversation about everything from surfing to books. But I also loved hearing, I mean, I loved hearing about the invention. It's a very intriguing idea and potentially a world changer. But one of the bits that really stood out for me, which I think many of you will relate to, is this idea of success being a long game. So that things worth pursuing, things that really matter to you, take time and dedication, but like major perseverance. So you can't give up when it isn't quick. And I was thinking about how success rarely happens overnight. And you know, maybe for some celebrities, but the really valuable stuff, the stuff that comes out of hard work and developing new ideas, that isn't quick. It's not easy. And I think we can get the impression that success just turns up out of the blue, but that's just spin. That is not how it works because the bold, the challenging, the new original ideas, they take time to develop and test. And there's so many stuff ups along the way, you know, there's so many challenges. But if things matter to you, or in Mark's case, not just to him, but potentially to all of us, to the future of sustainability and ocean plastic and solutions for greenhouse gas emissions, then, you know, this is worth it. So I think the main message from this episode is that if you care about something, you have to be in it for the long haul. And maybe you won't have time to go surfing. (laughs) Poor Mark. All right, let's sit down with Mark Herrimer co-founder and CEO of New Light Technologies. 
Welcome to the podcast, Mark Harrimer. Thank you so much for joining us. Where are you? Hi, thanks, Claire. I am in uh, Orange County, California. It's about 45 minutes south of Los Angeles. Are you a surfer? Is it near the waves? I am a surfer. Yeah. Are you? I'm in Huntington Beach, which is technically Surf City, USA. So yeah, I, I love surfing. Do you have much time for it? No. <laughs> I love it. And uh, usually I just miss it. I, I have gotten a few good chances this year, though, and I've been getting more and more into surfing again. I used to do it constantly, and then New Light became the love of my life, and I put surfing a little bit on hold for, for a while, but I've been, I've been getting back into it. All right. We're going to talk about science, which we often do on this podcast, but I always find that my way into these topics is through stories and characters because I'm creative rather than scientific, but I do love how those two things meld. And we were talking before we press record, Mark, about how much we mutually respect this circularity, cradle to cradle legend, William McDonough. But I wanted to start with that and maybe ask you, what's your favorite science story or your favorite scientist? (laughs) Actually, growing up, my mom was always my favorite scientist. She was a biology major. And one of the things I loved about the way she approached science was she always made it just very kind of tangible. And so she became a teacher and she had this experiment that she would do where you take two balloons and one of them you just breathe into, right? Like you'd normally blow up a balloon. The other one you fill up with, with carbon dioxide. And then into those balloons, you, you put in a, a thermometer and then you put both of them in the sun. And you can watch and see that as they both sit in the sun, the one with the carbon dioxide or a lot more carbon dioxide gets hot a lot faster. And so I love that experiment because when we talk about climate change and greenhouse gas, these are very like vague things that we're kind of just told, well, yeah, I guess I've heard it's getting hotter and I've seen the data. But when you can actually go and and do this experiment yourself and say, wow, like carbon dioxide is a heat trapping gas. I'm literally watching it. (laughs) It's happening in front of my eyes. Did you really do that when you were a kid? Yeah, this is, I mean, she didn't do it for for me, but she did it for her class and uh, shared it with me. And I thought it was so, so cool. Not all memorable science stories are as lovely as that one, right, Mark? The science story that always sticks in my head because I work in fashion and I remember researching this, and you'll forgive me if I've forgotten his name, we'll share it afterwards, is the story of one of the guys on the team at DuPont who invented nylon and how he was in fact a bird watcher and he spent a lot of his spare time appreciating bird life around where he lived. And it was only later on that he realized that his invention or the one that he was part of would have catastrophic effects on bird life crazy right obviously scientists are looking for consequences but i think it's easy to run away with things without considering what their broader effects might be right yeah well it's funny because even plastic right plastic when it was invented actually you could say did a lot of good you know it it downweighted things it increased the hygiene of things in many cases a plastic offering has a lower carbon footprint than alternatives in glass and, and paper just because of the the weight issue. Uh, what happens a lot of times though is you have these unintended consequences. And of course, plastic is too good and <laughs> never goes away because it's synthetic and nature doesn't understand it. But yeah, that's a that's a sad, sad story of mm. the inventor of nylon and birds. I wanted to also ask you what you were reading. Are you a reader? I I am a reader. And I, speaking of surfing, I'm, I'm actually reading this, this book, I believe it's called Barbarian Days. And it's about this guy's journey, you know, growing up surfing and, and traveling the world surfing. And I, I mentioned earlier that I've been getting back into surfing. And, and you know, it, it's interesting because we talk so much about the protection of the environment. I think it's so important to remember what it is we're fighting for. And it's so important to, to be out there and experience the joy. But there's just like a walk in a park. Or, you know, getting out in, in a hike in the mountains and surfing, whatever it is. But, you know, let's not forget why we're so adamant about protecting nature. And this this book is just about the, the love of being in the water and surfing. I think that's so powerful, actually, Mark. And whenever we talk about climate action or climate change in a kind of cold and distant way, 
we can't connect with it. We have to realize that this is home. We're trying to, I don't like that phrase, save, save the planet, but that we are actually trying to protect our earth, which is our only home. And that if you try to do that just by reading the data, I don't think it works, right? You have to feel some emotion. Yeah, that's right. And and I think, you know, if you look at what's happened with plastics pollution versus climate change, plastics pollution has created much more of a visceral response from people. And you've, you've had much more unity on that compared to climate change. And part of it is because ocean plastics is so much more tangible. And so I think the more that we can make these things real and part of our lives, the more that, that we'll get unity and, and action. What did you think of the latest plastics treaty? So that's good news, right? I mean, that's the latest UN move to get everybody united to regulate plastic production and pollution, essentially, the detail yet to be decided. Yeah, look, I, I think in general, it's very positive and, and we're trying to have a, a voice in that. And clearly the world needs to take massive action. We talked about unintended consequences. One of those is we better make sure that we, we do it right. Because as an example, in the world of bioplastics, alternatives to plastic, there are some that are better than others. Some that, that kind of go away, some that don't go away at all, and some that go away completely. And so when we say, well, let's put the whole world over into bioplastics, we got to be really careful about that. And so, you know, I, I worry a little bit about trying to tackle such a complex issue with a top-down approach. On the other hand, it's amazing that the world is coming together to try to figure that out. When you say with a top-down approach, what do you think we should be doing? Well, you know, something like the ozone layer was relatively straightforward, right? Reduce our use of, of CFCs. Uh, actually, my mom uh, took a class from Sherwood Rowland, who is the guy who supposedly discovered the, the whole new ozone layer. And and so that was that was an example of global unity. We came together, you know, that resulted in real action, real impact on the ozone layer. That's a beautiful thing. With, with plastics, plastics are such a complex space. Is it better to encourage more recycling? Well, what about if you have a bottle floating in the ocean, yeah, maybe it's been recycled, but it's still not degrading at all. And then if you look at the, all the issues associated with it, we just have to be careful as we go through this that we come up with really smart policies. And so I hope that that's what comes out of this. So I totally support the plastics treaty. It's something that we have to do. We also just need to do it you know, as intelligently as possible. Mm. Do you, obviously you think business has a role to play. You're in business and we're about to talk about what you're doing uh, with Air Carbon, but do you see that business has a leading role to play in tackling this stuff? And how do we balance the fact that obviously business is driven by profit? Well, actually the, the number one player in this space is uh, really simple. It's, it's the consumer. Because what's happened over the past five, six years has been a dramatic uptick in demand for alternatives to plastic. And that has then resulted in corporate initiatives, mandates to reduce their use of, of virgin plastic and try to replace it with sustainable alternatives. And so now what you see is that corporations are absolutely driving so much change in this space. Um, they are hungry for alternatives. So they, I would argue, the consumer plus corporation is driving the vast, vast majority of progress in this space. You certainly see legislation here and there, but I, I think the real wave of, of movement is happening with, with corporations and consumers. Were you at the COP, Mark, at COP26 last year? I, I was, and I marched in the streets both days. Um, I had the opportunity to be, I don't know, 15 feet from Greta when she spoke. And Did it was, uh, yeah, it was one of the coolest things I think I've done. Do you have kids? I have new light and air carbon. <laughs> <laughs> I asked you about COP because there were criticisms that it was potentially hijacked by big business from the Australian context. For example, the Australian Pavilion was sponsored by Santos, which is a fossil fuel company. There was a feeling that maybe it was a glorified trade show when it used to be a science conference. I think it depends on which circle you were in. I was not in the inner circle. So a lot of those pavilion type elements most people who were there weren't accessing those. I was not. And so from my perspective, I saw a lot of just kind of conversation and, and people on the street 
I did see a little bit of, of the uh, of the sort of corporate, you know, some sponsored you know, stores and pop ups and so forth. But that that wasn't my takeaway at all. In fact, what I felt was almost too much of a anti corporate, like everything's broken. Okay, which I felt went actually too far. So I think it depended on where you were in the uh, in the experience. All right. That's so interesting, Mark. Let, let's talk about what you're doing. So I want to read for listeners something out from your website. Every day, nature uses greenhouse gas to make valuable materials. Trees pull carbon out of the atmosphere to make new leaves, and coral reef pulls carbon out of ocean water to grow. When you started New Light nearly 20 years ago now, you set yourself a sort of provocation. Why can't we use greenhouse gas as a force for good? The logic being that nature does that, right? Yeah. I think that people spend a lot of time, especially in this space, kind of what I'll, what I'll call it, shouting at each other or shouting into the wind. But it's it's a lot of like, you should do this and you should do that. Absolutely. And and I think that's important, right? I mean, it's good to want to see change. But, but we can spend a lot of time doing that and not making a whole lot of progress. And so for me, it's a lot more interesting to say, okay, fine. <laughs> we, we hear everyone's perspective. Okay, where can we agree? Like what things can actually make some progress? And it seemed to us that if you could take this carbon that you'd otherwise be breathing and use it as a resource to, to create products, and if those products were good products, then potentially now you have a consumer-driven pathway to environmental remediation. I get real skeptical kind of waiting around for government to, to fix this thing. I, I kind of think that you know, and we're seeing it already in plastic. It's the consumer-driven, market-driven things that I think have ultimate scalability. That doesn't mean there's not a role for government. If government put in a, a carbon price tomorrow, you would see such a massive movement in the space. We've already seen it. There's a there's a tax provision in, in the US called 45Q that gave expanded tax credits for people doing carbon capture. And the number of carbon capture projects in application went from like five to like 300. And all of a sudden, everyone's now starting to get into it, including largely oil and gas companies. So I think there is a role for government. With that said, I we, and we were really inspired by the idea of maybe we can take this into our own hands. I want to ask you in detail about your process and what you do at New Light, but since you mentioned carbon capture, I know that carbon capture and storage is different to what you're doing, but because we're going to be using some of those similar words, maybe there's confusion with listeners about what that means. So our audience is global, but if you're in Australia particularly, you will have heard a lot about this mythical idea of carbon capture and storage being the cornerstone of our carbon reduction policy. It is absolutely not here yet. It's not been scaled. It's filthy expensive, hasn't been proven to work, and is currently being definitely used as an excuse by the fossil fuel companies to keep on mining. So there's a lot of controversy around that because it is a future technology, shall we say, that's been politicized. What do you think about that, Mark? And because there's controversy around that, has that made it more difficult for you to put across what you're doing or to do you meet resistance when you talk about capture? Hmm. Um, I can't say I've seen that. It, it, it does seem off to me to just bury a bunch of carbon underground. It, it, it seems like, number one, a real waste. Um, <laughs> and I guess the, the other part, like I, I know that all of these only work because they're fully sealed. <laughs> There's a part of me though that just worries that at some point it comes back out and then it's all for naught. Look, nature's been doing carbon capture for forever, right? When you make a leaf, that's carbon capture. Yes. It's pulling carbon out of the air and turning it into this beautiful material that we call a leaf. And I think that that's a really good template. If we can find ways to to harness greenhouse gas as a feedstock to use it to make good things, then we have a really great platform and also something that can drive at scale. Because when you're trying to figure out how to fund trillions of dollars of capital projects, and you're right, there's very, very few of these projects in the world today because of the economics. It's just hard to see how that gets us to the places we need to go in the time that we need to get there. So we really like nature-based solutions. The very backbone of nature is carbon capture. 
And we can learn from that. Okay, so I mentioned one idea behind carbon capture and storage in the fossil fuel industry. That's not what you're doing. Tell us what air carbon is and how you produce it. Sure. So many years ago, there was the the BP oil spill. And out of that, there was a whole lot of greenhouse gas, methane leaking uh, under the uh, ocean surface. And then there were a whole bunch of uh, articles that came out, including from National Geographic, that asked the question, all this methane was leaking out, but it didn't get to the ocean surface. Why? What happened? And it turned out that there were microorganisms, microorganisms in the water that were eating this methane that was, as it was bubbling through the salt water. And so back so many years ago, almost 19 now when we started, we were looking for to answer the question, well, how does nature do this? We, we came across this, this phenomenon that there are microorganisms throughout nature, including in the ocean, that eat greenhouse gases as their food source. And what happens is they grow and multiply. But one of the things that they make inside of their cell as they grow is this muscle-like material called PHB. And PHB is this really, really fascinating molecule. First, almost all known life makes it. Uh, like we never hear about it growing up, but but it's it's everywhere. It's thought to be about two billion years old, so evolutionarily very old. Is it in us? It is. Yeah, the human body contains this this material, this molecule. So I I always get this sort of avatar feel with this material, like it's in everything alive. And so I, I think of that like bioluminescent moment in Avatar where this, and, and also because it's an energy storage material. So when, when microorganisms make it, they make it to store energy so they can access it later. And because of that feature, if you isolate it and you purify it, you can turn it into a fine white powder. And because it's an energy storage material, it takes heat to, to do something, but then something happens, it melts. And now you have a meltable material, but because it's made in every ecosystem on earth and almost all living things, if it ever ends up back in the environment, it's a totally environmentally degradable material. Nature sees it like a banana peel or a tree leaf and will break it down. So all of a sudden we had this sort of platform idea, which was now, wait a minute, we can take, use renewable power, feed air and greenhouse gas, these microorganisms, they'll eat that, turn it into a replacement for plastic that's environmentally degradable that seemed really, really compelling to us. Um, so that's what air carbon is. Now, it, it took us about a decade to figure out how to replicate what happens in the ocean and do that on land. It's fascinating. So we is your business partner, Kenton Kimball, right? Yeah, Kenton, um, tying all this together. So my mom was his fourth grade teacher. Then we met in sixth grade. So we were like <laughs> teeping houses together and, you know, all the things that sixth graders do. So we've known each other for, for forever. But yeah, Kenton and I got, got together back in 2003. But he, he ended up being a bioengineer. You studied politics at Princeton, right? That's right. Yeah, he was doing biomedical engineering at Northwestern. So you're not a scientist, but he brings the bioengineering background, right? Well, uh, I think after 19 years in, uh, in the space, I've picked up a little science, but, but we certainly have, have uh, different and interesting perspectives on things that I think have been really effective. Mark, actually, I want to talk about that. You are a scientist. You might not be a scientist by formal education, but what you just said there is so interesting. I wonder why we, I did it to you, why we put people in boxes that are decided by a piece of paper because if you've been working on this process with scientists, developing and inventing a new process for 20 years, I think it's fair to say that that is what you do. <laughs> well, uh, a little bit of background. <laughs> so in high school, I was as deeply nerdy as was possible. I was on the National Oceanographic Science Bowl team, uh, where you're basically in a panel of people and, and someone would ask you a question. For instance, you know, what microorganism causes uh, bioluminescence and you click in and say dinoflagellates. So I was so heavy into science in high school that when, when I got to college, I kind of wanted to try the other side of, of life with, you know, history and politics and religion and so forth. I always found that the convergence of science, like, for instance, I think moral philosophy and quantum physics is the coolest convergence because they kind of speak to each other. And actually, the way New Light started was... I got really sick my junior year and um, spent about a year kind of suffering through, through it and couldn't figure it out and decided that I would go back and, and go to medical school. 
So I was getting ready to do a post back, starting to take more science courses. And in the course of that research came across an article that eventually led to New Light. So science is definitely in the blood. But but to your point, um, I actually think we're all kind of scientists in, in a way. I absolutely love that. We did it. We did an episode a few series back. We'll share a link to it about the Great Barrier Reef and a citizen science project that was inviting all of us to be collectors of evidence to see and experience the health of the reef. And I loved that. And it was basically saying we've all got a role to play and we don't have to leave this to inadverted commas, you know, nerdy scientists in their white coats. We've all got the capacity to be investigating what's going on with our world, which I love. But all right, you said that you'd gotten sick. It turned out you were celiac. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And just on that point of, of science for a moment, I, I think people have this idea of scientists, you know, with these white lab coats and something. Mm. For me, at least, science is just about like explaining the unknown. And we all do that all day in our lives. I mean, in every subject, whether it's your relationships with each other or even yourself, whether it's trying to figure out a business deal, learning what patterns sit behind things, and it might be unseen, but you, you try to figure out well, what's the cause, what's behind it. You test a theory, maybe it doesn't, it's not right, doesn't fit, you keep going around. Science is, is, a, is a way of thinking, and I think it's a, a beautiful one. Mm, same. And also, it's obvious it's so deeply connected with context and history and, you said, philosophy. It doesn't exist in isolation. No, it doesn't exist in isolation. It's, it's man's continuous quest to, to learn more about the world. And that, that is a great place to be. You read an article in the LA Times about cows right. and methane. Getting the cows to cool it. Getting the cows to cool it. Exactly. I knew I'd written it somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, Gary Polakovic, back in June 2003, the, the thing that was making me sick was I had celiac. And so if you know much about celiac, digestive conditions are, are part of the joy. And so I came across this article about methane from cows. So it caught my eye. And in this article, it talked about how each dairy cow was burping about 600 liters of methane per day. Seems like kind of a silly thing. You know, we've all kind of heard about cows and Turns out it's burps. But what caught my eye was the quantifiability of 600 liters. And I just thought, what is that? I mean, methane has a market value. How much is this? And, and the quick math was about $20 in methane per cow per year. Well, so now you have a 1,000 cow farm, it's $20,000. That's real. That's very tangible. Explain what you mean about a price on it. So you can go in the newspaper and, and there's a, the heat value of methane is, is priced. So it'll range, you know, three, four, five dollars per million BTU. All that is the heat value. So, so if you have technically 600 liters per day flowing into air, that has a market value today. And so you can quickly kind of calculate each cow burps X amount of dollars <laughs> into the air every year. So you read this while you were thinking about your own digestive system and it just set off a, a light bulb. Well, I was, I was looking for every solution, any solution. And so I, I thought to read the article to see, well, <laughs> what's being done there? And I had always been very interested in, in market-driven solutions. And so I wasn't searching for anything. It just kind of came across it. And then it just really caught me that people at the time were talking about burying carbon or taxing carbon uh, and largely still are, but it was very compelling to think about, well, what if we could use it as a source of good? For listeners who haven't read around greenhouse gases and how we define them and what they comprise, do you want to just fill us in? Because it's not just carbon dioxide or CO2 that leads to global warming, and that is a, a GHG. Yeah. I mean, greenhouse gas, it just means a heat trapping gas. And so the, the two major greenhouse gases are carbon dioxide and methane. And methane, it turns out, is about 23 times more powerful as a gas in terms of holding heat in. And so the reason that the world has been getting hotter is that we've been emitting more and more of these gases into the atmosphere. And as that happens, as the sun hits our planet, it's holding more and more heat in. And so you look at the data and it's, it's crystal clear carbon dioxide and methane concentrations are up. 
temperatures are up and you can do a simple balloon experiment in your backyard and, <laughs> and verify that this is, this is the impact of putting heat trapping gases in the atmosphere. The atmosphere heats up. We need a diagram of the balloon experiment. Okay, so coming back to air carbon, you've created a thermoplastic that basically uses sometimes methane, sometimes carbon as a feedstock, right? Well, first, uh, you should know we are we we shy away from the word plastic. It's certainly a meltable material that can replace plastic, and that that is very true of the material. But we're on a mission to replace plastic in as many places and ways as we can. And yeah, to make it, we use greenhouse gas, and that can be either methane or carbon dioxide. Um, and we have microorganisms that chew up those gases, turn it into this muscle-like material. We extract it, turn it into air carbon. So if listeners are getting confused, you might have to go back and listen to it again if you're hearing the story for the first time, which I love. But remember that Mark talked about how he'd found out about the, is it right to say microbe? I always stumble over the right language, but bacteria, microbe, something mm -hmm. that was in seawater that was consuming the emissions from the BP spill under the, under the sea. So tell us about how it works. And you get a big tank full of seawater or salt water. What do you do? Yeah, the the BP wasn't uh, what what kind of sponsored the idea, but it's a it's a good way for people to kind of okay. uh, yeah. understand. But um, yeah, so basically, our reactors are kind of like a slice of the ocean. These big stainless steel tanks, we fill them with salt water, then we add in these microorganisms. Let me ask. I want to know. Sorry to interrupt you, but it's so interesting. Do you use seawater or do you use water with salt added? A <laughs> great question. Uh, we use water with salt added. Because it has to be pure or something, right? Doesn't you don't want a load of crabs and mollusks floating around in it, or what? Yeah, we don't want we don't want <laughs> crabs and mollusks. Is that a weird question? See, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> no, we get it all the time. We get we get a lot of interesting questions. For instance, if we make too much air carbon, will the world get too cold? That's one of my favorites. <laughs> it would be nice. Yeah. No, we so uh, you know we don't want to harvest actual ocean water for a variety of reasons. So. Uh, we start with tap water and then we add salts to to sort of mimic uh, a saltwater solution. And then to that, we add in these naturally occurring microorganisms. Uh, we spent the, the first few years of the company's life just searching for them and, and trying to find microorganisms that did this process really effectively. And then we feed into that tank our gases. So air and greenhouse gas. By weight, the molecule is about roughly 40% oxygen from air and about 60% carbon hydrogen from, from greenhouse gas. And so we can use either carbon dioxide or methane. Today, we, we prefer methane because it is 23 times more powerful as a greenhouse gas. So, you know, with limited time and whatever, we focus there first. So, yeah, once, once it's made inside the cells, we then extract it, turn it into a powder, and then melt that into pellets. And then once we have the pellets, we can make all kinds of parts and pieces. We're going to talk about what you make, but just sticking on the feedstocks. So you've actually previously, I don't know if you're still doing this, right? But captured methane from landfill or used that which has been captured. How does that work? Yeah. So we've taken methane from um, dairy farms, food waste digesters, landfills, abandoned coal mines. We're very, very interested right now in anaerobic digestion because if you can imagine taking all of your waste and putting it into an anaerobic digester, using the gas that comes off of that to create more air carbon, it's a really beautifully circular system. Would that be food waste then? Yeah. So imagine, you know, when you go to the airport, right? And, and you get to when you want to throw something away and you got trash and recycle and compost and landfill and you're like, I am a good person and I do not know what to do here. <laughs> so we think that's part of one of the big reasons why recycling is, is such a challenge. Um, what if we made that way easier? What if when you went into a restaurant, there was only one bin and you were only served either food or things that broke down like food? And so now it all goes into the same place. It all goes to anaerobic digestion. That's turned back into biogas. And then we can either use that for power or to make our materials. So we think that's a whole new paradigm for recycling that we think could really improve overall recycling rates. Very interesting. Okay, so I want to know what do you make with it? So you're creating this, let's use the term plastic-like or plastic alternative material. And you've actually found a use for 
greenhouse gases that otherwise would be causing harm or adding to global warming. So you are kind of storing it. Are you storing yeah. it? Is that the right way to look at it? But in products which may have been made of plastic. That's right. It, it is carbon storage to a great degree. I mean, I'm, I'm holding a, a spoon here uh, made from air carbon. And so for us, this is this is very useful carbon capture and storage. Now, as a degradable material, this carbon can be re-released in the same way that when you grow a tree leaf and it falls on the forest floor, then that carbon is released and you have a you have a cycle. Now, if we use methane as our starting point, even when that's biodegraded, that methane effectively turns into carbon dioxide. So you go from 23x to 1x. And so oh. you have a net improvement in overall carbon balance. Can you recycle that spoon? You can. Or would you not want to? <laughs> How does it work? Uh, the, the first thing is we want people to keep it. So it, we got lucky with the molecule. Nature makes it so that it can be used in a dishwasher. So you can just keep it and, and keep reusing it. If you don't want to, it certainly can be recycled. It has to be you know separated out like every other material has to be separated out. Um, but it can be remelted. But as we were mentioning earlier, for us, it's it's not just mechanical recycling. It's also biological recycling. And that's a whole new path that the world hasn't seen before. I mean, think about when you do mechanical recycling, if you had a spoon and it had food on it, you got to clean it and you have to do all these things to actually truly recycle it. With biological recycling, food waste, air carbon, it can all go in the same place and all digest together. So it's just kind of a, a more simplified path. So you're focusing on two main applications at the moment, being food, where so forks and spoons, but also fashion. Why those two commercial uses first? Yeah, um, the, the the market is so big, and we know we're going to be material limited for a long time. And so we said, where can we have, where can we create the most value? And so if you look at ocean plastics pollution, the oceans are basically filling up with fishing equipment and foodware. And so we eventually want to do fishing equipment as well, but we, we thought to start in foodware. So let's create products that people love, but that won't contribute to ocean plastics pollution. And we think we can have a really, really big impact in this space. And, and we talk about the middle ground here a lot. So you take one of our straws as an example. It's smooth, never gets soggy, but it goes away as fast or faster than paper. And I think that's really important because Paper straws were a good example of people want to help the environment, but look, it's a pain in the butt when, when you're halfway through your drink and your straw's not working. So let's create products that are great for the environment, but that people also like. That creates true scalability. So that was that's that's our mission on the foodware side is to really help address ocean plastics pollution. How long does it take though to break down? I, I saw an interview that you'd done with a news journalist, so a video interview, and you told them that it could take up to a year for one of these items to break down in the ocean? It entirely depends on the, the thickness of the part and okay. the temperature and, and setting of, of where it is. So as an example, a, a straw in ocean water, we tested it and it did take just over a year to, to go away completely. By the way, imagine if you could snap your fingers and in a year, all the plastic in the ocean was well on its way to being gone. That'd be pretty exciting. It, it also learned that it takes a leaf about six to 12 months to go away completely. I didn't know Does that. Does it? Yeah. But there's a bonus because there's no microplastics, right? And there's no microplastics. This is a food source. So there's nothing that's going to last for forever. Now that's on the ocean side. So it's cold. There's not a whole lot of microorganisms. So that's why it takes a while to break down. In an anaerobic digester, it takes about 15 days. So that's because it's higher temperature. Um, there's more wow. microbial activity. And somewhere in the middle of that is your industrial and, and home composting, depending on the temperature and the condition. So the specific time depends on a lot of factors. But what we know is that because it's a natural material, because it's a food source for microorganisms and soil and water, it will eventually go away. And that's, you know, really exciting to us. And, and let's also remember that nobody intends for these materials to end up in the ocean anyway. Of course, we know it's an enormous problem, but you're not designing material with the idea that it will end up polluting the ocean. You actually want to create a circular system where you're recapturing it or figuring out another way for its end of life or continue a circle of life. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's why we the first cutlery product we launched was a reusable cutlery set designed to go in your dishwasher over and over again. 
you know, whether people are going to start carrying around cutlery sets, you know, TBD. But at least we wanted to encourage that. And the second thing is this anaerobic digester, circular recycling, biological recycling. That's enabled by air carbon because what comes off of that process is greenhouse gas. We can reuse that. So I think that's actually one of the best ways to prevent stuff from getting in the ocean to begin with. Okay, this is a fashion podcast and we're going to end on fashion. But before I get there, I just want to ask you about what it was like to not be able to or to decide not to tell everyone what you were doing because you were developing this really kind of world rocking tech, right? But I wanted to share just really briefly something with listeners about one of the last times plastics was disrupted and what those guys said about it. So first of all, I was thinking, let's get everyone to think about the little symbols with the chasing arrows on the bottom of plastics, common plastics. So, you know, you've got a milk bottle or a water bottle or some other container, you turn it upside down, there's a little chasing arrow symbol with a number in it. And people think that that means it's recyclable or recycled, but it doesn't. The number just tells you what type of plastic it is, right? That's right. Yeah. So, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven is other, so it's really confusing. We'll share in the show notes details of all the other numbers, but I wanted to raise number two. So number two is HDPE, which is high-density polyethylene. And then there is three, which is the low-density alternative or version, which is more flexible but also breaks more easily, right? So it has it has different uses. But in the 70s, the American chemicals giant Union Carbide, which is owned by Dow Chemicals, And incidentally, they were one of the big players in the development of the first atomic bomb. So that's nice. But in the 70s, these guys figured out how to make HDPE in a really cheap way, right? And they called it Unipol PE technology. And at the time, and this changed everything because it was so cheap, right? So it made plastic increase a great deal, shall we say. But at the time, they said the new production method was so advanced, it required only half the capital cost and a quarter of the energy of the standard method used at that time. And you can read all this on the Union Carbide website. But essentially, these guys changed everything. They kept it close to themselves until they figured it out. And then they slashed the cost and used less energy to do it. So I wanted to ask you about that, Mark, because if you're going to disrupt an industry, as they did in a different way, and you're doing in a completely radical way, you got to A, make it cheaper, and B, not tell anyone, right? <laughs> well, um, we tried to solve for, for both. The, the first 10 years of our company's life, we had no website, no public interaction whatsoever, and we were just developing technology. Um, and our goal was to create a cost position where we could compete with, with normal plastic. And our, our belief was that unless we did that, we really couldn't get true scale. So we had a number of breakthroughs over a decade of work, plenty of setbacks as well. But net net, a, a series of advances that eventually got us to a platform that we believe over time has the ability to compete with you know, your traditional uh, oil-based plastics. Now, it's going to take us more time and, and scale primarily to get to those price points. But we are at today a very, very attractive cost position. And and look, we, we studied the Unipol case study a lot because they went from zero in the 70s to incredible market share. And we want to do what solar and wind have done in the energy space, which is eventually getting to a turning point where companies start to legitimately ask, should I be installing new fossil fuel-based power or should I be installing solar or wind? And that's a function of economics. And if we can get there with air carbon, where you know Exxon asked the, the question, should we put more high-density polyethylene capacity in or should we put air carbon capacity in? If we can get to that tipping point, then all of a sudden you know, we, can, we can move at the scale that we need to. Right now, there's 20 billion pounds of plastic going into the ocean every single year. It's atrocious. And, and to address that kind of scale, ultimately, it's going to have to be through licensing at the end of the day. We're going to go as hard and as fast as we can with our own production, but but it will require licensing. And the Unipol license model was part of why it was so successful. And that did boil down to economics. And that's why it's been so important for us through our development. 
I mean, otherwise, and we hear this with so many new gen materials in the fashion space, if it's, and often they, they stop at this point, don't they? But if it's too expensive, people just won't take it up. They might experiment with it with one little capsule collection and then you never hear about it again. There's a limit to, to what people can do reasonably. And, and the other thing that's, I think, challenging in this space is these things, this isn't software. It takes years to build and grow scale. And so I think one of the frustrations for a lot of corporations is that there is a hunger for more sustainable materials, but oftentimes optionality just isn't there. Even if you have a material you like, just getting enough of it to, to fulfill your needs. So it's definitely a journey and it's it's one that we're, we're still on. Do you like fashion, Mark? <laughs> um, I, I do, I do. I say it like that because I was recently told that my fashion wasn't that great. <laughs> uh, so I've been trying to pay more attention. Turns out a lot of people wear white shoes now. I didn't know that. That's a big thing, at least here in LA. Uh, <laughs> it turns out that that Nike Air Force Ones are the most popular shoe in America, and white Nike Air Force Ones, I think, are the most popular shoe. So my eyes are are opening continuously. That uh, <laughs> so I I like fashion. I appreciate fashion. I don't know if I'd be called the uh, the most fashionable per se. Segway though, Nike. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that they were the most popular shoe in America before we announced our partnership with them. But as I was learning about this, I, I was thinking, great, that's <laughs> good. good. Yeah. Company. But what are you doing with them? We are working to get air carbon into their products to the extent that we can to help reduce their the carbon footprint of, of what they make. Incredible. Congratulations. That's massive. But Let's end on this. So we talked about food wear. People are like, I thought this is a fashion podcast. That's fine. We only, sometimes we never even mention fashion except in the intro. But actually there's a brilliant fashion connection and angle on this story because the second product category that New Light and Air Carbon is working on is in the fashion space. Have you started this brand? Is it called Covalent or Covalent? Covalent, yeah. Covalent. Is that yours or you partnered with someone else? So that, that's our brand. And we wanted to, to bring that to market. You asked why why fashion and food wear. Fashion, part of the reason is we get really excited. Probably the, the, the deep nerd in us comes out here. But the, the idea that you can take carbon that would otherwise be in the air and hold it in your hands, if, for me, I still get really excited about that. And we wanted to bring that that joy and that experience to people so they could also you know have an air carbon wallet or air carbon eyewear and, and feel like they're really part of, of, of that. And so, you know, I think decarbonizing fashion, obviously it's going to take a long time, is a great goal. Right now, fashion is the cause of a lot of environmental harm. And between microplastics and carbon emissions, as well as all the chemicals in the space, there's a lot of work to do. So to the extent that we can help turn fashion, not just, and I think Bill McDonough would appreciate this, not just you know, less bad, but actually go into the other side of the column where you're actually part of restoring the environment. That's a really, really cool thought to us. And so we wanted to open that channel. Look, there's a ton of stuff that we want to do, but we, we thought starting with food and fashion was a good combination of addressing ocean plastics, but also, you know, showing people what's possible with carbon capture. So if you buy a handbag or a wallet from the site, there's actually this really kind of cool blockchain tool on there where you can track the story of the product and its carbon capturing history through there. Yeah. You know, when we talk about these materials, they're carbon negative materials. And I think when you hear someone say this is a carbon negative material, you have to be naturally skeptical. And so what we did was a few years ago, I reached out to IBM and ask them, hey, can we work to get a blockchain tracking system set up so that we can track all of our carbon inputs and outputs? And the, the net result of that was our fashion products all come with an individual unique blockchain number. So when you get it, you can, you can type it into our website and press play, and then it'll show all the steps in the production process, I think down to the second, and then uh, finally conclude with, you know, what, what the specific carbon footprint is of that product and who independently certified it. And so for us, we wanted to, to try to, to be able to back up all of our claims as, as deeply as we could 
And we felt blockchain was a really interesting application for that. I read this story of the brand in, in Women's Wear Daily and WWD. So you've had some great reactions already. What are you hearing? I mean, you're working with Nike. It's obviously cutting through. <laughs> our, our biggest challenge today is not being able to make enough material. Ah. There's a lot of demand for what we do. And we're really happy about that. I say that with humility. It's taken 19 years to get here. But our, my main focus today is, is getting more production capacity in the ground. So we're getting ready to build a new site that will significantly expand output. And we're going to be announcing some, some cool partnerships in the fashion space uh, as well over the next few months. So yeah, we're working hard to expand you know, where the stuff's being used. Mark, what would you tell your nerdy science young self if he could see where you are now? Hmm. That's a good question. I think I'd, I'd tell my nerdy young self to try to enjoy it a little bit more. It was a long journey. Those first 10 years were, were long and that we went through plenty of hard times. As I look back now, there's a sweetness to that whole experience, but it didn't always feel that way. <laughs> now I, I, I get to experience a little bit more joy when I you know, see our Eagle 3 reactor and I see our products and I can go into a, a restaurant and, and now it's not plastic, now it's air carbon. So I'd say enjoy the ride a little bit more. <laughs> Your mum must be proud. <laughs> well, as a, as a biologist, I, I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it, Mark. You get to go surfing now, I hope. Maybe. <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Claire. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you. Because I love you.